it's my absolute honour and privilege to um, welcome up my better half, uh, Pastor Timothy George. He's the location pastor here. And we're going to do the swap of the baby. So excuse us for a moment. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Hey everyone, want to jump to your feet? Let's get out some. Um, let's get out some last bit of energy before the preach. Hey, we love to do a mighty shout to God before the preach in anticipation for the breakthrough that's going to happen, um, and just out of love for God. It's a celebration of His Word. That's what a preach is. So, on the count of three, let's just give God one last big shout. Get your last energy out, and then we're going to connect him with the word, all right? So one, two, three. Jesus! Woo! Jesus, we love you, Father. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for everybody here, Lord. Thank you for the testimonies in this place, Lord. Thank you for every heart and every mind. Lord, open them. Open them to your word, Father. Lord, we just love you so much. And we approach you with all humility, Father. You are King, Lord. We bow before you, Father. We can only learn truth through you, Father. Help us to understand. Amen. Grab a seat. This church really loves Wednesday Connect Groups, don't we? (laughs) One week I'm going to do the golden run. I'm going to try and hit Wednesday prayer. Then Wednesday, Men Connect, and then Wednesdays at the Narayans, you know. You can time it just right, and you could do all three. That's my challenge to you. Try and get all three. (laughs) Report how you go. Let me know if, if you can do it. All right, on that note, today's sermon's called Right Priorities for the Righteous Minority. Now, everything in life will compete for your attention. Even connect groups, apparently. (laughs) Everything in life will compete for your attention. But there's only so many hours in a day. That's a a common problem. So we we have to start making our decision about where we're going to put our time and our energy. This is real stuff. So what are a Christian's priorities? And how do we practically consider those priorities within our family and relationships? Now, none of us are going to get this perfect. I want to begin the sermon by saying that. Has anyone got it perfect yet? (laughs) Good, because I would sit down and you could come up and preach it if you'd got it perfect. None of us have it perfect yet. But I think that it's important that we talk about these things all the same in the way that we make decisions, in our thoughts about life. Now, as your pastor, as the pastor of this church, my desire for each and every one of you is to see you in the fullness of your calling, to see your life thriving, to see you in a healthy home, in a healthy relationships. That's my desire. And I've got to tell you that if you're not intentional with, uh, if you're not intentional with, considering your priorities, that you might make the mistake that young married Timothy at 19 made when I used the last of our food money to buy an Xbox. (laughs) And I was forced to humble myself 
to smash open Cherie's childhood piggy bank to get coins to make a phone call on a payphone because I had no credit. That was when credit was a thing. And so there I was in the rain. Like It's like a Hollywood scene. It was in the rain. I was at a payphone putting coins in and hoping someone was going to pick up so that I could get money for us to eat. Wonder what my priorities were back then. (laughs) For the unbelievers and the immature who are ignorant to God, one expects that their priorities probably begin with self. Sometimes they begin and end with self. That's a really big problem. But at least for for most people that don't know God, it might begin with self and then it kind of emanates out from there into what's just around you. So spouse, children, family, town, city, nation, race, world. Just emanating out. Now suffice to say that a Christian holds very different priorities. And we're going to be going through, hopefully that's not a shock to you. Hopefully that silence isn't shock, uh, but we're going to be going through that today. Now, depending on your priorities, uh, today's sermon will either be a challenge to you or a reminder to you, hoping it's just a reminder. Now, if it hits a nerve with you, don't shut down and just disregard everything. Just allow God's Word to wash over you and just let it do a healing in you, you know. If every time God's Word offends our sinful nature... (laughs) If we just stop listening and we shut down, then we're not going to get very far with God. The whole point we're here, the whole point we need Jesus is because we're not Jesus. We're not perfect. Our priorities, our thoughts about things, they need to be healed by Jesus. Okay? So let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, that teaches instructions on all things, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you've talked about priorities, Father. And we just pray, Lord, that as we consider our thoughts and our priorities in our life, Father, that you would help us get a better understanding of who you are and what you would have us do, Lord, and how to balance our life, God. And we thank you, God, for being so present and for even making yourself human so that you can teach us these things, Lord. Amen. So number one priority is, come on, call it out. Give me a bit of that enthusiasm. <laughs> Jesus or God? No, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> oh, yeah, so number one is God. Very good. Deuteronomy 6.5. Very famous verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Not much room for movement there. Love Him with everything you've got. Let me tell you a few words that belong to God. Glory, majesty, honor belong to God. (laughs) These words wouldn't even deserve to exist without the presence of our divine God. Glory, majesty, honor. What beautiful words. Beautiful. Love, truth, goodness, they belong to God. They belong to Him. They're descriptions of Him. When we use them, when we live them, we are in the image. We are following God. We're trying to be like God. If you're doing those things, they don't belong to you. They can never belong to you because we just won't get it right. They belong to God. I love that. That gives me so much hope and comfort that all of goodness belongs to God. It's safe with God. (laughs) I love that. 
Now, before we met God, we were nothing. You weren't even created. Without Him, we're still nothing. God deserves everything you've got and more. So set God upon the throne of your heart and mind. All other priorities beyond this, there'll be a distant second and they won't hold any true truth. They won't hold any eternity. You won't be able to take your hard work with you unless you connect it to your first priority as God. So for all other things you do, for all other priorities, this is your lens, this is your filter. It needs to have that, needs to have that infusion with God's calling in your life, with your created purpose. Make sense? Cool. That's number one. Number two, second priority is your spouse. Matthew 19.5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall cleave to his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 34. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now, who knows I'm a bit of a stirrer? (laughs) I'm a little bit of a stirrer too. I say too because Joel likes to call himself a stirrer. (laughs) I'm a bit of a stirrer too. I've chosen here two verses that have a bit of a paradox happening. Now, like in a person's motivation to find true love is such a motivation of this world. I think of, you know, my mind kind of goes to reality TV, to be honest. That's not good in church. (laughs) How many shows? Married at First Sight, Love is Blind, all of these shows, we're obsessed. All of these rom-coms, we're obsessed with finding true love, finding the one, you know, that pairing. There's something so special about that pairing. And the Bible is challenging because... uh, because its approach to even to love to the priority of love, it's, it's different than what the world would give you. And you'll fall into what the world will give you if you don't shift your comprehension of that priority. Now, me and my mates, we'd all given up on a friend of mine called Timo, we call him. He was 30 years old and still living at home. And we are... Uh, See, we're the only ones laughing. We're terrible people. (laughs) We always would joke at Timo's expense because he was still living at home and he would, um, and um, we'd always joke that this guy would never get married unless his dream girl literally moved next door. That was our, our joke. But let me tell you this, God did one better. God actually interned a lovely Canadian girl named Rain from across the other side of the world in his tiny little church. (laughs) And now not only are they married, but they've got their second child on the way. Come on, let's give a round of applause. That's pretty good. That's pretty good matchmaking. (laughs) I think that's awesome. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, 27. Do not look for a wife. (laughs) 
I reckon there's a lot of people in this world that would sell their soul to find true love. But they wouldn't give Jesus time of day. Love personified Jesus. (laughs) Got their priorities wrong. Caring more for the love of man than the love of God. I believe that's original sin, that Adam placed Eve above God in his heart, that he was willing to forfeit paradise, willing to forfeit Eden, willing to go into sin because he was so in love with Eve. I, I just, I don't want us to make the same mistake. I don't want my kids to make that same mistake. That was a mistake, okay? Forfeiting paradise, giving up on your relationship with God for anything is a mistake. So we need to find love and purpose in God first. And let me tell you this as well. If that's challenging you, let me tell you this. You will never be a good lover until you find your love and your meaning and your purpose in God. I don't know. Even with God, sometimes I'm still not a great husband. Let's just be real for a second. God, I tell you, He makes you something. He makes you, He, he works on you. He, he builds things in you. He can save marriages. He can give you character. He can give you purpose. He can make something marvelous out of you. But you gotta want it. Now we say we trust God. Well, if you truly trust Him, then trust Him to find you a wife or a partner. Was it God that, that, that said, is it not good for man to be alone? It is not good for man to be alone. That was God that said that. Clearly, he's, He cares for man. Was it not God that made a match in heaven for the first man? When you trust in God, if we say that God is goodness, if we say that God is love, and when you trust in Him, trust Him to give you good things. And in the meantime, while you wait, how about just working on yourself with God? It's not a passive wait. It's an active wait with God. And the love that you can find in God, it'll fill your life. And God might call you to date. He might call you into marriage, and that's great. I'd love that. That's the next part. If God has led you to a Christian partner, great. If you're struggling with your passion, fine, just get married. It's really simple. Struggling with your passion, get married. That's what the Bible says. And being married is the best. I love being married. It's so good. Once you're married in God's eyes, you're one flesh with your spouse, and you can't get any closer than that, people. I love it. So good. Sometimes Sheree and I will finish each other's sentences. Sometimes we'll like have the same thought with absolutely no prompting. The longer and longer we're married for, the more that that gets a little bit eerie. (laughs) Now Ephesians 5 outlines man as the head of the home. Controversial verse. But verse 21 is, the, Ephesians 5.21 is actually very clear that both husband and the wife are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
It's a mutual submission. You don't hear that preached too often. Now, for the men in the room, let me ask you this question. How far would your head go without your body? (laughs) If man is the head of the home, we are of one flesh. But I tell you that a man, if a man is the head of the home, then they need to be closely partnered with the body. And it's only in that moment, it's only when you take your family on the journey with you that you can actually go anywhere. Otherwise, you're just a floating head. (laughs) That's a weird image. So in terms of mutual submission, the things I, I could think just straight from the top of my head that that might mean is maybe listening before you speak, really hard to do in reality. Giving each other the biggest slice of cake. That's a great principle that we try to do in our home, you know. You know when you like make yourself something really nice or you pour a drink, it's that little bit higher and the sinful nature says to you, you know, I love this drink, I'd love that one. And then, and then in marriage, if you want to save your marriage, then I'd suggest to you that you give the one that you want to your spouse. Does that make sense? It's very practical here. Very difficult, you know. Actually, um, I, I believe uh, Cherie might forgive me the other day, but, but she, she burnt the cheese on the nachos the other day and then she gave me the burnt one. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And I, I, think, in a, I think, you know, in her head she was thinking, oh, he likes it a bit, charcoal. <laughs> I know what you're doing. That's all right, that's all right. Now, now let me tell you this though too though. At times I get so focused in on whatever it is I'm doing that I actually forget to eat and drink. I don't know if you're like that. I get really focused. Um, And a common question from Cherie to me now when she gets home is, have you watered the children? Again, very practical. Now the point being is that we're one flesh, but you can't, you can't just uh, treat your wife and your kids with the same neglect that you might treat yourself. You hear what I'm saying here? I'm saying there's probably some ways that you are treating yourself right now that may not actually be godly, that may not be good. And so it's, it's, it's in being married and it's in being a husband and it's in being a spouse that you can actually learn to be a better person. So it's, it's not just enough to be like, the oneness is a great principle, but to treat them better than you treat yourself and you become a better person. That's why I love being married. That's why I love being a father. Okay, now let's go into the real nitty gritty here. What if you married an unbeliever before giving your life to Jesus? What if your spouse idolizes you, puts you in number one, and expects the same from you in return? What if your spouse isn't living like a Christian behind closed doors? Their priorities are off. Are we to submit to verbal, physical, or emotional abuse? I've got to tell you, the history of the church might tell you that you should submit in that way. That seems crazy to me. Like, this is important stuff. This is why we're preaching about this. Are we to submit to sin? No. 
This is why it's important to talk about our priorities, right? Because when God is in that first position, when God is number one, then we do not need to submit to abuse from our partner and we do not need to submit to sin in our home. This is really important that we just take this in. In fact, allowing your spouse to treat you poorly can actually enable the sin. And I'm I'm not looking to shame victims here. I'm just saying, tolerating that, not speaking up, allowing yourself to be silenced, allowing your freedom to be gone, it's not helping them. The cycle will continue. Something needs to break. You do not need to submit to sin. And I say it and say it again. We're married first and foremost to God. Therefore, we submit first and foremost to God. Amen. That's, I believe that's what's meant by 1 Corinthians 7.29 when he says, From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. That's not saying that you're free from your obligations. That's not saying you're free from your responsibilities. It is saying that it is not your number one. Now, if it is unacceptable, like, no, it is unacceptable for your spouse to attempt to prevent you or your children from gathering or communicating with believers. I'm just going to go through some really practical things of what I believe is biblically unacceptable. You should be able to live in the freedom of your faith. You should be able to communicate with Christians. You should be able to speak about transparently. You should be able to come on a Sunday. You shouldn't have someone say, you can't do those things. You should be able to, uh, if you want to give to God, you should be able to give to God. You shouldn't have your beliefs gaslit by your partner, making you feel crazy for believing in God making you feel crazy for believing what the Bible says. That is a, a Christian right. That is what Jesus, Jesus died for your freedom in these areas. It is, is important. And I don't believe that anybody should be able to exert control over your faith, anybody but God, that is, since you belong to Him. Now, conversely, I'm speaking very hard here but let me also say that as long as your spouse is willing to accept your Christian life with all that that entails you need to keep working on your marriage and that's hard to hear isn't it that so long as they're willing to keep working on it then you need to be willing to do the same Keep demonstrating the gospel in your living that you might win them for your first love, Jesus. Keep working on it. We're with you. The church is with you. And I'm sorry. Look, let me apologize. I'm sorry for the hurts that we're all going to have to go through in the, with the people we love. There's going to be hurts. It's never meant to be that way. But with the church, Jesus is with you, we are with you. And miracles can happen. I'm believing, I'm believing that in this place that marriages can be healed. <laughs> We're willing. Okay, next on the priorities list. I'm gonna run out of time, people. Might have to split this. <laughs> 
Next on the priorities list, they speed up as we go. Children. Malachi 2.15. What does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Matthew 10.37. Anyone who loves their father or mother than me is not worthy of me. This is Jesus talking. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I believe church starts in the home. Church is homegrown. And the godly families are the backbones of the church. In fact, Jesus chose from his disciples, Jesus chose many brothers to one another and close friends to one another. There's something about godly homes. When Jesus sent out, uh, when he sent out people and he said, go do the go do the work, go spread the gospel. He said to, to stay in one home, not to move about, to stay in one home. So there's something about a godly home that is a foundation to the church. Parents play a minor role in conception, but God knit us together in our mother's womb. Told you I was cheeky. If you marry, God expects you to have children. Be fruitful and multiply. Never negated. Forget overpopulation. God said, be fruitful and multiply. He will provide. He'll provide. I believe God's big enough to provide. Uh, Okay. He expects you to have children and he expects you to train them to be godly. Now, why train our children? Because they're born sinners. Proverbs 22, 15, folly is in the heart of a child. The parent's most difficult task is to reason with folly. And to train folly is very difficult. Malachi 2.15, it pivots a child's salvation upon the strength of their parents' marriage. I believe that marital love is not only the momentary conception of a child. I believe that it's intended to be the foundation of the child ongoing through their whole life. I just know with every part of my being, that if you can hold your marriage together, if you can have a good marriage and a good home, that your children, it's so rare that your children will see the value of it. And they'll, they'll say to themselves, they'll say, how did my parents do that? And how can I be like them? Maybe not as the foolish child, but when they're grown up and they're looking back and they've had their own troubles, they'll look back at your home and they'll be like, how did they do it? Teach me your secret, whatever it takes. It's when marriages are breaking down. It's when the trouble strikes. It's in the middle of the storm that you'll do whatever. You're just like, give me a better way. (laughs) This is why we work so hard on these things. Now, marital love, it's a foundation for your child. Okay, now a child is actually the embodiment of parental unity, if you think about it. Your child is equal parts father and mother, right? I believe also that the security of a child's relationship and the harmony of a child's identity, it's founded upon the oneness of their parents. Now, if you are divided in the way that you parent, or if you split the marriage, I believe that you break the heart of the child, that's obvious. But I also believe that you split the identity of the child. 
And that's why it's such a priority to safeguard our marriages, to invest in our marriages. Because if you split the child, although we say it's not your fault to the child, we say this is not your fault. Everybody says that to the child. But the reality is that the child is left trying to reconcile two halves within themselves that you've declared irreconcilable. That's the, the basis for divorce nowadays, irreconcilable differences. That's the basis for divorce. How are we to expect a child to reconcile those differences within themselves, to not hate themselves or pick one side over another, to be broken? How are we to expect them not to break? And, and the parent will try and sell it to the child and say, this is the best thing for you. Does this make sense? This is a hard word, but this is a true word. When we have children, it's, it's very precious. God takes that really seriously. And when you have children with someone, they're always going to be a part of that child's life. You know, I've seen people get divorces and they think that it's going to be done, that that relationship's going to be done with, but they still have to negotiate the hardship with that other person. And it's like, gosh, you're talking about them all the time. You're spending so much time with them. Maybe you just should have stayed married to them. Sometimes that's how it feels. We work on our marriage because we understand that it is the foundation for our children. The home is the foundation for our children. Now let's talk about some of the other challenges with, with children. My children awaken most nights, almost every night. And when they wake up, they come into our bedroom and they drive themselves like a wedge between my wife and I which is all right in the summer, but in the winter, it's a problem, you know? I don't have no heated beds or whatever. <laughs> and I believe that there's a metaphor here for what, uh, I believe there's a metaphor there for what a child kind of does. That there's actually, kids are born with that folly. They're born with this insatiable, sinful narcissism and they'll take as much love as you're willing to give and then some. Every parent in the room knows what I'm talking about. You get back from the party and then they say, where's my lolly? And then it's, can I have a show? It's like the handouts never stop. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Now, children naturally think the parent belongs to them. The home is, of course, their inheritance. And the rest of the world, it just revolves around them, right? Now, I've seen many parents fall to the trap of replacing their love for their spouse with their love for the child. Very common. After all, let's face it, it's easier to love an innocent child than your spouse who should know better. <laughs> what are the children, darling? <laughs> it's just easier. When we get our priorities wrong, when we pour all of our love into children instead of God first, spouse second, we actually confirm the child's narcissism. We actually allow them to lead the home. We allow them to divide our marriage. You know, confirming the child's narcissism in that way, that won't serve them well in life. 
What are they to do when they enter into a marriage? And they can't be the center of everything anymore. How are they to be ready for the world? You haven't prepped them. You haven't trained them in the way of godliness. Now, at some point, all children rebel, 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 and they endeavor to seize the the familial reins. I believe at that point, that's fine, that's going to happen. I believe at that point, what they really need is a patient and open discussion. You know, sometimes at that point, what's happening is they don't actually understand what your values are. And that that can hurt a little bit because that probably means that you haven't told them in a way they could hear. And that comes back to that listening thing. This is actually really hard to do, to actually write out your values as a family, to talk about your priorities, and then to give that to the child and to share why you do what they do. Because I would be willing to guess that in 75% of homes, that the kids have no idea what their parents actually believe. I just threw, that's not an actual statistic. I'm just throwing that out there. But just ask yourself, do your kids know well what you believe, your priorities? I can tell you right now, I'm preaching the sermon. I can tell you right now, my kids don't. So let me just be humble in that way. This is my challenge is to teach them what my family's values are. And so we can default back to them when the trouble inevitably comes. I believe that, um, okay, so patient, open discussion with our kids and consistent biblical boundaries. Parents actually have the privilege of partnering with God in prophesying into our children's lives. I love that. We can call out our kids' meaning and purpose. You know, your child, you can give them a head start. Your child doesn't actually need to just be praying for themselves. As their parent, you can pray for them. And for the people here that don't have kids, let me encourage you as well. This can be your other relationships too. Because of course, in the Bible, I'm not gonna have time to preach this full sermon, so I'm just prepping you for that now. (laughs) But in the Bible, it says anyone that is older than you is your father or mother, and anyone younger than you is your sister and brother, or your son and daughter. Paul said about Timothy, he's my son in the faith. I don't want to give away the rest of the sermon because I'll preach it later. But suffice to say that the church becomes a very interesting family unit. And so when I talk about marriage or when I talk about children and things like that, please don't switch off because the the Bible applies to you. It applies to you. Requires some wisdom there. We call out things in our, child, in our children's life. We talk about their created purpose and we take them on the journey of our faith. We don't hide our light under a bushel, our special relationship with Jesus, our special giftings. We share it with our kids. We explain what we're doing. We explain why we're doing. Easier to say than do. I believe that if you pray to God, He will be delighted to give you the right words and wisdom in how to reach your children. I believe that every person has a unique language. We all have different motivations. Maybe we should share the same priorities, but we all have different motivations. And that it requires the right words sometimes. It requires someone to speak our language in order to motivate and inspire us to do the right thing. 
Jesus was the master at this. He always had the right words for the right person at the right time. I wish, come on. If we can get that right with our kids, if in those moments, in those windows of opportunity, and again, every parent or every good friend knows those windows of opportunity when it's kind of like you hear harps playing or something like that. And for some reason, your kid suddenly wants to know about what you believe and why, wants to know about Jesus, the things you've been praying for. And it's often at an inconvenient moment. That's your chance. Be prayerful, be wise, speak into who they are created to be. You can say to them, you have authority to say to them, listen, I've been praying for you. Do you know how nice that feels to hear someone say that to you? I've been praying for you. And here's something that God's been putting on my heart for you. I can tell you this. Let me, let me talk from my life again for a second. That when I do that with my children, when I say to them, this is why you were created. I see this gifting on your life and that's part of why God made you. And I can see in their face, it's like an epiphany. I can see their faces light up because I'm not an accident. Dad sees me. Dad values something that's in my life. I can rise up into that. You know, it becomes so juicy for them. It becomes so enticing. Your vision for them can be bigger than their own awareness of themselves, their, their understanding of their own self. And they can be like, you know what? I want to be what dad's calling out in me. <laughs> and the world will come and it will sell them this sugary rubbish that doesn't last. And then they'll be like, you know what? When dad spoke that, when mum spoke that, when so-and-so in the church spoke to me and the Word of God rattled me to the core of my being and it's like, that's what I want to be. <laughs> those are the words, you know, those are the words that plant the deep seed. That's the deep root. That's when all else shakes and the rest of like the petty stuff that we carry on with falls down. That's what you return to. That's what I want to be the deep root that you can plant in your children's life when you raise them up. The enemy will not steal our children. In Jesus' name. Let's say it again. The enemy will not steal our children. In Jesus' name. <laughs> it's the future of the church. It's our legacy. So good. Now, for as much as children test their parents, they're also hardwired to seek our approval. That's God's grace. <laughs> hardwired to seek our approval. Now, you can't make your kids love God. I've tried. It feels like, you know, we may not all have to physically place our children upon the, upon the altar, but the heart of every parent knows that that's what it feels like that the trust that we put in God when we release them out the door, that the trust that we put in God, please, Lord, give them the faith. Let them see you. That trust, it feels like putting them on the altar and we're praying, Lord, build that trust in them too. Let them know that you're not here to hurt them, that although they're on the altar, that it's not gonna be the end of them. It's the beginning of something. They can learn to trust you. They can give their whole life to you, God. And that's scary and that's real. All right, I'll get you to stand to your feet.
none of the rest are pliers because we only did two of six, but that's for later. <clears throat> now, today we've been talking about the right priorities for the righteous minorities, and hopefully you came along with me. Hopefully you've had a chance to reflect on your thoughts and your heart. So now in the service is a time when, to the God that sees all things, you have a chance just to try and uh, let Him know where your heart is at. You have a chance to make a step of faith where if you know that God hasn't really been number one, that your spouse hasn't been number two and that your children haven't been number three, if you've got the order wrong, and you want to just realign yourself with God and you need that help, here's a chance for you to make a step of faith in just raising your hand. That's all I ask. See those hands. Who else? Come on, yep. 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 Keep those hands up. Raise them high. No shame. Raise them high. It is so hard. It is so hard. But it's easier with Jesus. Amen. Church, you can have your eyes open to those people that are around the people with raised hands. If you can just like reach your hands toward them, if you can see them as well, we're just going to support them. And we're just going to pray together, God... We can't do it without you, God. That's just the truth of it, Lord. But Lord, we know, Lord, that you are close to us. And we believe, Lord, that you can save our marriages and you can save our children, God. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe that we can see your goodness right here, right now, God. We've got to believe that you can see us, Father. Lord, it is out of faith, Lord, that these hands are raised, Father. Lord, Don't forget us. Don't turn your face from us, Lord. Be present with us, God. Stir up their spirit, Father. Help them to know the truth of You right now. Touch them with Your Holy Spirit right where they stand, Lord. Touch them, Father. Touch them, God. Reach right in them, Father, to their hearts and minds, Lord. Give them the words and the wisdom, Lord. Not only to believe these things, Lord, but to live them, to walk them, God to let them transform their lives, to let them transform the world, Father. We know that's what You want to do, God. We know it. Father, just fill us with Your Spirit, Father. Correct us, Lord. Mold us, shape us, take us, Father. We bless Your holy Name, Lord. We are so grateful for You. Let's give God another shout, church. Jesus! Woo! Thank you, Lord.